0: Hello, and welcome to the Other Minds Podcast. I'm Joseph Bohegan. Other Minds, founded in 1993 in San Francisco by Charles Amrakhanian and Jim Newman, is devoted to championing the most original voices in new and experimental music. On Season 2 of the podcast, we're talking with the featured composers from our 27th Other Minds Festival, which will take place November 14th to 19th, 2023, at the Taub Atrium Theater and Gray Area in San Francisco. Today, I'm excited to be presenting a special crossover episode with Decipher This, a podcast about music and technology from Ensemble Decipher. Joining me now are Bora Yoon and Joshua Ott. Bora Yoon is a Korean-American composer, vocalist, and sound artist who conjures audiovisual soundscapes using digital devices, voice, and instruments from a variety of cultures and historical centuries to formulate a storytelling through music, movement, and sound. Joshua Ott is a visualist and software designer who creates cinematic visual improvisations that are performed live and projected in large scale. Welcome to the podcast, Bora and Joshua.
1: Thanks for having us. Hello.
2: Thanks for having us. Yeah.
0: So Bora, in a lot of the performances of yours that I've seen, you're always very thoughtful about the visual elements, whether you're working with video or the unique instruments that you use. So could you tell us about your interest in multimedia work and how you started your collaborations with Josh?
1: Yeah, thank you. I guess when I compose music, I always envision it first. Or to me, the visual element is very important, uh, even from the conception. I usually have to kind of see the stage or see the piece in my mind before I start even making sounds about it or with it. And Joshua Ott's visuals are just the most beautiful thing that I have ever seen. I met Josh in 2006 at Share. actually. It was a really wonderful audiovisual night in New York that was kind of at a dive bar, and everyone just could plug into the AV system. So people who had interesting sounds could plug in and play those, and people who had interesting visuals would plug in their VGA or HDMI at the time, or whatever it was then.
2: (laughs) Oh, it was VGA. It was VGA.
1: (laughs) Uh, Bring it back to the VGA. And I just remember seeing all sorts of different expressions of kind of what was happening in the New York community at the time. And I had seen Josh's visuals that were really fluid and generative. And it was like nothing i had seen before. So elegant. And I immediately was like, who makes that? And I went and found him <laughs> and um, was like, hi, we should hang out. <laughs> like, I'd love to, would love oh to know gosh. more about how you make that. And um, I think what's beautiful about where SuperDraw has gotten to now is that it's not just a visual component. It actually has become audiovisual, which is super exciting. And I'll let Josh talk about that. So whether, yeah. you know, it's multimedia, whether it's object-oriented or whether it's costumes are even thought of in the kind of presentation, I think about the scale of a performance venue. I think about the scale or the thematic or kind of even historic aspects of maybe the venue that we're in. And if there's ways in which music and visuals can tap into this sense of where we are and place, how to make things more immersive, I guess. These are all aspects to me of how we take something that is normally proscenium-based and perceived from a very very presentational lens to then becoming much more circular and much more immersive. Because I think that's where the most exciting and the most um, memorable experiences of performance happen is when all the senses are activated and brought together to transport people, essentially. And yeah, Josh, I'd love for you to speak about your beautiful program, Super Draw.
2: <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Do you remember our first, what was our first gig together? Was that the Stone?
1: I think it was the stone it was john zorn's venue in new york city at yeah, the time yeah, yeah. it was in lower the Side. old
0: one the, the small little black yeah yeah. yeah 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 with yeah,
2: yeah. this yeah. <laughs> super janky basement <laughs> the green room was like the basement and it's all like dank and and musty and stuff oh yeah i love that you remember seeing my stuff at share and that you mentioned share at all that was such a wonderful you're right I me as a visualist I was I was born at share like as as a visualist that phenomenon was so special because it really was this like anybody could just show up and do anything and there was this creative openness and freedom to play and try things and and fail I didn't feel pressure to make something perfect and so you know I I went there I think Morgan Packard was the one who dragged me there the first time. And it was just so inspiring to see everybody trying trying things and failing and sounding bad and not being afraid to do that and looking bad and not being afraid to do that. And just it just keep going and keep trying stuff. And everybody had all these different controllers and stuff. And so I was really inspired by that. And I'll try to give like a really brief history. Superdraw started, I was inspired by Share. I was working as a Flash developer and Adobe had just released new tools in Flash that allowed you to draw lines, which believe it or not, was a big deal. Like you could actually give points to the system and have it like make a little line there and control the thickness. And I had been experimenting with that and I decided I wanted to try something at Share and I showed up with a little test program that drew lines and started messing with it. And I loved the way it wasn't really anything like anything I was seeing, but it had sort of an expressive quality to it. And so I started building on that. And so SuperDraw was always a line drawing tool. And I think by the time Bora, by the time you saw it, it was probably a bit more advanced where I had different looks and things I could turn up and turn down. And I just became obsessed with making a visual instrument. And for me, that meant focusing on what I was hearing and interpreting it as an artist and making decisions about what I'm hearing and how that should look. And doing that in the moment on the fly as an improviser. And I kept working on it and adding features. And I think it's been like 15. It's been a long time. It's been 15 or 16 years of of development on this thing. And over the years, I've, I've done a million different variations of it and added everything, including the kitchen sink, has <laughs> features to it. And yeah, Bora mentioned, it's now not just a visual instrument, it's an audio visual instrument. But the thing I want to say about working with Bora is that every collaborator that I have is special. And working with Bora, like I can tell like from the first performance, whether this is going to work out. And like, I knew it that at the stone at that first thing, I could tell like, just the way Bora approaches sound and the way she's experimental and improvisatory, it just it fit really well, and there was this kindred i don't know feeling of of entwining in the moment and in the the thing that we were creating, which was becoming something bigger than the some of its parts and I think when these things work, that's such a beautiful and desirable thing for me and and it's what I dream of as a as an artist and improviser making a visual instrument is to make this thing that is like. A, giving the audience an, another viewpoint into what they're hearing, but also just like making something that's taking us into another world. Yeah, so now it makes sound, and Bora has been very gracious as a as a longtime collaborator to let me make squeaks and squawks and crazy sounding things along with her beautiful voice. And as even like some of my favorite things that I've done with Superdraw orally involve Bora's voice, she made me at Impact actually made me this just like on the crappy computer mic, just a, I think it was like a 10 second sample of your voice going from a tone into a breath into a shh sound like a and that progression is such a fabulous I love that sample so much anyway
1: it's interesting um, because you're using it in a granular way and that's in that capacity right. and I think the thing that I love also is, is the fact that I think in, in new music or when we go to concerts these days I think it's more and more expected in the 21st century that it is an audiovisual experience that lighting is somehow involved that projections or Sometimes I think about this in the classical or contemporary world, especially in the classical world, people think that they're done once they've got stand lights and they've got concert lights and (laughs) and that's it. And I'm like, no, no. (laughs) Actually, I think people more and more these days, not just expect it, but desire it. It creates an enormous dimension. Like to me, Josh's world that he brings is like, it's a visualization of the emotional weather that I'm trying to paint a lot of times. And so when we make set lists together, that's our overlap is like, what is the mood of this song? And like, what is the place of this song? You know, this is a dark, warm evening breeze that's threatening, violent, but calm in Bangkok at 5 a.m. Go, (laughs) you know, so (laughs) it's descriptors like that, or like, this is bright dawn. It's a morning song and it's a spiral and it's 8 a.m. Right or something like that. To me, it's like it's a feeling. Josh takes that feeling and runs with it and makes just the most beautiful, generative, expressive environments. That I think they work in tandem so well for the audience member who perceives them synergistically. Then, where the audio and the visual support one another and create, as Josh said, a kind of a, an environment that's larger than the sum of its parts and and taking people places.
0: <laughs> you mentioned your recent performance at MPAC, which is the Experimental Media and Performing Arts Center at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in New York. That space really seems like it provides a lot of opportunities for multimedia performance and spatialization of sounds.
1: Yeah. The facility at MPAC is just out of this world. It's state-of-the-art, absolutely, uh, created by Johannes Goebel, who founded ZKM in Switzerland and is just essentially acoustic royalty. It is the home of the high-density wave field synthesis array. Wave field synthesis has existed prior, but this is the version that is the most High density, as in 256 channels or times however many arrays they have now, an extraordinary number of of array boxes that they can assemble to create, essentially to create 3D sound. It projects audio holograms within the space and kind of these vertical columns that are invisible. And... So they have a wave field system which places sound in 3D as well as an ambisonic system which is in surround and multi-channel around you in an orb or in kind of a circular format. That's the one where you can sense it with your ears and your body senses as to where the sound is coming from directionally. Wave field synthesis is actually derived from a very um, algorithmic process that essentially generates it from the arrays linearly and then projects it outwards. So it's not as directionally heard but for that reason kind of that much more A novelty to kind of be able to place a sound like a ghost, like right next to somebody, or that a sound can bristle by and really create this sensation that I think is probably what I think Edison was enamored by when he first made the phonograph. When he thought that truly that these were recording ghosts, or that audio, because it's formless and non-embodied, that you know, it became in some strange way, I feel like it harkens full circle back to that, or even the dawn of photography where people thought when you took a photo of someone, you might've captured their spirit um, or that, is, is there something to that? <laughs> mm-hmm. um, this technology is kind of uncanny in that kind of way too, in that sense that you're like, wow, that sound just passed by me. But is that, you know, you obviously that was synthesized and created, but and so when I think about that theatrically, that's really exciting is like how, because I always think about how do you craft an experience for a listener in a 60 minute concert, 75 minute concert, what kind of journey are you taking people on? Uh, what is the emotional weather as it transmutes and transforms and transports people? Um, and so this idea of how you open up the senses or still create aural surprises, visual surprises, uh, ways in which the audio and visual can interact, um, that became a lot of the language that was kind of the through line of Phonokinetic, which is the show's name, which we produced and commissioned by Impact at RPI.
2: Yeah, and I would say that working at MPAC was, I mean, it was such an amazing pleasure to work with that staff. And those technologies, both the Wavefield Synthesis Array and the Ambisonic Studio One, the theater spaces there, they're just incredible. And that staff is so eager to try new things and so open to experimentation and like helping us see our creative vision through that I want to live there. I I mean, I was joking about hanging a hammock like in the rafters above studio one and just like joking, not joking, like actually living there (laughs) so that I can just like sneak in at midnight every night and like do more experimentation. But yeah, I'm completely in love with that space and that whole process. And they really supported Bora's vision and helped us like realize it in this, in this absolutely incredible way that I don't know any other place that's like that in my experience and their eagerness to just support and give us tools. I don't know. It's just amazing.
1: Yeah. It's such a treat. And it's also really hard to, I always had a footnote in my mind being like, don't get used to it. <laughs> it <was> like <laughs> you, you can only do it here. <laughs> So that's also kind of one thing to like, when you develop a show at, at a place with such incredible facilities of like, okay, how does this translate to, to, you know, like normal venues? yeah
0: I'd like to ask about movement as well. It's something I've talked to you a lot about, Bora, with your work with Ensemble Decipher recently. And I read with your performance at Impact that you use Joshua's Superdraw software instrument with Mimu gloves.
1: Yeah. I think to me, the impetus that started phonokinetic was this idea of, well, actually, phonokinetic is a generative title from the initial kind of petri dish that I grow a lot of my works called phonation. Phonation means the utterance of sound into language. I'm always interested in seeing how objects or sounds and instruments become kind of phonemes to create a larger working language and structure and kind of different ways to create audiovisual ideas by using the associations of sound as kind of these bits of language. So phonation then from their birth to phonokinetic, which is to me the gestural version of phonation that then takes, implements the Mimu gloves and other gesture technologies that we're we're thinking about now as a way to take it out of just kind of the staid concert area footprint of a, I guess, a concert show and go fully theatrical with it. And to me, the core of it was... If I can somehow bring what I think is the freedom and momentum and gesture and language that I feel when I dance with, not that I'm necessarily a dance, but like literally physically separately when I dance versus when I actually make music. Those are the two places where I feel truly transported very separately. And I wanted to see the overlap and the synergy of where gestural and dance language and musical language can come together and audiovisual music, essentially. How can we bring all of these sensors together so that one gesture, while it can be seen in just a physical a gestural way how can that gesture also be as a side product have an audio sweep that goes with it how can that also potentially draw something or create a shadow somewhere and create a corollary with the world that is painted on the projections so it's about how to bring all three of those realms together within this kind of slow buteau language in some ways but sometimes it's about conducting slash conduction is the way i think about it is this like how does the body become a conductive? medium then between all of these, these worlds from the audio, from the visual, as well as the gestural and kind of 3d space. So it, it really is the start of a new language and I'm really excited about it. It's definitely the brink of my performance research right now. And I look forward to developing it further. I think it's really exciting where things are. And I know that Josh and I have spoken a lot about, you know, potential other technologies in which the sensors may be more expressive, are more embedded in a way that's more natural. So I think we're still fine tuning it. We're still tweaking as to like whether it's truly hands or whether it should be elbows and wrists or, you know, like whether it needs to be so finely articulated versus actually a larger spatial gesture.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The thing I wanted to say is that supporting these ideas from Bora and making movement and and that kind of interaction, part of the performative aspect and how things are generated, it fits into sort of my core design principles around what SuperDraw actually is. And working with Bora, I, have, I completely gave up on considering my output as a screen. I now consider the thing that SuperDraw outputs as a completely separate space. It's a three-dimensional liminal space that exists in some other dimension that we're not, you know, you can show it on a screen or you could show it on a phone and or you could do it in AR, or you could show it on some stage lights. And the reason I mention that is that that abstraction, that concept, enables me to, as the sort of designer of this tool, to use any kind of input and any kind of output, really. And so the Mimu Gloves became this way that we could access the sort of three-dimensionality of this liminal space, of this which Bora was creating and I'm trying to fit these things into. And yeah, it's three-dimensional. It's outside of what any of us understand. And how we choose to represent it is part of the creative choice, but also how we choose to manipulate it is also part of the creative choice. So Beyond Mimu Gloves, there's AR and phones and that sort of thing. But there's also you know, VR controllers and maybe just movement across the stage. And the nice thing was being able to try all these things and seeing what works best and seeing what gives us the most amount of control creatively for what, what we needed to do to, to support the piece.
0: Let's listen now to an excerpt of Clock Sequence from Bora Yun's Phonokinetic. Performed live at MPAC in March 2023.
1: The bodies we live in shape the worlds we experience. The bodies we live in sculpt and shape. The bodies we live in shape the worlds we experience. The world.
0: You'll be performing together at the last night of the Other Minds Festival in November of 2023. So could you give us a little hint at what's going to be in store for that performance?
1: Oh, yeah. I think what's exciting about... Having done Phonokinetic and having done Phonation with Josh for many years, it will be a kind of a hybrid featuring the audiovisual version of Superdraw in a collaboration with the sonic world and gestural kind of sound object theater world that is my stage setup. So it will bring both of those elements together in a really immersive screen behind to create a just a, an evening length uh, kind of arc of different environments and sounds different kind of soundscapes in which we take people, I call them kind of different soundscapes of different weather and different times of day and night <laughs> <laughs> because that's kind of what they feel like. Yeah. I think there's going to be more details fleshed out, but I know that Josh is ever working on new patches and exciting new things that are either uh-huh. fluid and tonal, sometimes jittery and, and glitchy, beat oriented. So it's really exciting actually at this phase to be collaborating with Josh as a audiovisual collaborator. I've often collaborated with beatboxers or people who produce beats or things like that, because I, I specialize or with where I sing and my register. I can take care of the high end really well, and I can take care of the mids and kind of this like the tonal language of the world. And so the opposite complement of what I do would be kind of the low end and the beat architecture. And I, I'm excited that Super Draw is really developing into such a beast of an instrument And collaborating in that kind of capacity too, where I think it's going to be much more like an like an audio producer in some ways, where like Josh is laying down kind of the the groove and the beat or things like that. And then the song starts from there and it'll evolve. And so I think this is a new threshold for us and it's exciting.
2: Yeah, I'm totally psyched about working with you in this way, Bora. Like I think some of the some of the things we worked on at MPAC and some of the sketches that we were doing we we would do these little jam sessions together where I would put something big on the screen that then Bora kind of jammed on top of to create really kind of incredible things that I absolutely cannot do with this instrument. And the interesting thing for me is, like I've been through this entire journey of learning audio <laughs> synthesis programming from scratch as a just sort of crazy in a in a crazy mad scientist way, like I'm not trained in any way, I'm just kind of picking it up as I go and trying things and sometimes attempting things that I probably should not have <laughs> and sometimes those those work out well, and sometimes they don't. but the really nice thing is is yeah, designing these things so that we can fit together and intertwine in this really amazing and beautiful way. It's been an incredible journey, like making that happen and figuring out how how that works. And yeah, I'm, I'm super excited to show more tricks. I mean, I like I have lots of input things that I've been working on and things to try. So there's definitely going to be some new stuff. And there's definitely going to be some of our highlights.
0: Bora, you're also writing a piece for Ensemble the Cipher called Cat's Cradle, which turns a giant constellation of strings into an instrument that's manipulated by the performers, becoming a sort of large version of the string game that a lot of us played as children. So could you tell us about the genesis of that piece and what people might be able to see when we premiere it in October?
1: Yeah. Cat's Cradle is kind of an extension of the idea we were just speaking about of of gesture, of how does gesture become attached to then interesting sensors or interesting uh, ways to be able to parse data uh, and turn that into sound in a very interesting way. I'm really excited about the world premiere of Cat's Cradle, which will happen this coming October. Actually, just before Other Minds then.
0: Yeah, a few weeks before.
1: Yeah, because it's a real departure, I think, from the work that I've been doing in terms of audiovisual multimedia work that's usually bound to a screen and to objects to then becoming just singular one concept, but just scaling it out to an architectural level. It's somewhat loosely inspired from Ellen Fulman and her long string instrument, or it's a very different string instrument, that one. And Ellen's long string instrument is a 50-foot string instrument that is uh, tuned in just intonation and bound to resonance boxes, which essentially turns the room that you're in into the resonator. So it's kind of like a large inverted violin. So just in terms of structure, I suppose, um, influence an idea. But the way Cat's Cradle works is a very different string system because it's with these golf tethers. They are very well known and kind of iconic with the Princeton Laptop Orchestra, Plork, which is where I did my grad studies at Princeton and worked with Plork um, to kind of hatch this prototype. I noticed from like my first year in Plork, <laughs> many, many, many years ago, that the strings were kind of this interesting fluorescent pink color. And I always thought, hey, is that blacklight reactive? And it turns out it actually is. And this is how I usually in my work, it starts with a phenomenon. It's usually some kind of thing I notice an interesting sound, an interesting feature. And then I just kind of lean into it and be like, what can we do with that? How can we judge that? What is that? There's something interesting there. And so the fluorescence was very interesting to me, being like, you know, that means that we could totally light this a really interesting way, not just pull these two strings out of a box in the ground and have an XYZ sensor, which is really cool. But I feel like it, the gesture kind of stopped right there. And then we kind of, it stunts a little bit at... Oh, here's my gesture to make this sensor do something, which instead of a gesture that's more dance oriented, and the sensor is, happens to be responding to the dancer's gesture. So it definitely lives in that uncanny valley between is it dance or is it gesture or is it a sensor performance? So we essentially, Cat's Cradle has six of these boxes, five in an arc and one in the back, which then get pulled up in their fluorescent strings, carried on by the fluorescent strings of the same color to a singular point up on top. And so when you walk into the venue, you're just going to see this glowing orange-pink structure, which then the six players and performers of Ensemble Decipher slowly start to activate with kind of oscillating gestures, move pushing the strings out and in, making the structure kind of breathe or becoming kind of an anthropomorphic structure that seems to have a life or seems to have a, a breathing and homeostasis kind of relationship with space. And as each performer then creates shapes and opposition or twists and turns. The sensors are then connected to a large, intricate max patch, which is enabled through flucoma, which is fluid corpus manipulation, to be able to train the train the gestures, train the positions to be able to generate different oscillations of sound, bring off different harmonics uh, found in the spectral field of that particular pitch. So it changes the timbre and the quality and sometimes even the rhythmic quality of the sounds. Visually, what do you see? Uh, You see a really fascinating kinetic sculpture that essentially then gets manipulated over time to create these really fantastical geometric shapes that are symmetrical. And two performers come down to the front and then proceed to play Cat's Cradle verbatim, the children's game with the long string, which is with the same day glow string. And these X's and triangles and geometric shapes that are made within the hands of Cat's Cradle then are echoed in the kinetic structure behind. So it becomes kind of this Michel Gondry logic of cause and effect as to whether these two performers are Actually, attenuating the strings behind, or whether the theatrical mind, from the audience's perspective, puts these two images together to see them as cause and effect, which is kind of the sleight of hand or trick of the eye that we're doing, as a from like a theater directorial standpoint. So it's really like nothing I've done before. <laughs> Sometimes <laughs> I don't quite know what to call it. <laughs> is it an installation? It's—I mean, it is an installation. It's certainly installed in the space, and in, you know, it takes a quite a bit to get it up in place but it is, it's a kinesthetic instrument. It's an audiovisual kinesthetic instrument that's sensor-based. Um, it's also a kinetic sculpture. It's a sensor sculpture as well as a musical performance. And so I'm really excited about it because I think it truly is something very new or even in my kind of repertoire of works. So I'm like, yeah, I'm not even sure what category to put this <laughs> one in, <laughs> but you know, it, it truly was born out of First of all, just like the unique skill set that Ensemble Decipher has as six very adventurous and very innovative performers who all work within the audio, visual, and multimedia fields using sensors with Mari Kimura's music sensor, with laptops, with spatial speakers. So, this is just such a, a wonderful collaboration synergy to bring together six like minded people who do specifically work in the crux of, of a very exciting and innovative field that is still kind of, I, I see it as like the cauldron from which all new innovation and like multimedia things happen is at the edges. But when you push something to the, f- the edge of its field and where they touch on each other, I feel like that's where you get really interesting uh, manifestations of, <laughs> of of interdisciplinary things. And I'm just so grateful that Ensemble Decipher is game, is keen, and is, is really just like the perfect ensemble to set this for. And we are very grateful for the support of Harvard Music and the From Foundation uh, and the Barlow Endowment with Brigham Young University, who has helped make this a possibility and make, make this possible. So yeah, it's a... How do you feel about it, Joey? You're in the piece. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah, I mean, we're very excited to be able to do things that are interesting to look at and to be able to move around. When we started out, we were typing on our laptops in the dark, and nobody knew what we were doing. They're kind of like, maybe they're checking their email kind of piece. So we're very excited to be moving around and interacting with each other in physical space. So that's why we were super excited to be working with you on this piece.
1: Yeah, it kind of turns you guys into like six different players. I know you guys have collaborated before too, but in a way, it's actually like a I don't want to say synchronized swimming, but like it's a, it's like it kind of is like synchronized swimming. That it's like synchronized something. <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, we're like all six of you are agents of of a lot, and so everyone has a very very astute understanding of kind of how this looks like from afar because it's all in symmetry. And I'm glad that you brought up that point about you know tapping on the laptops and things like that because even in my time at Plork. That was actually how I first started working with Jeff Snyder and Flork. I remember he actually brought me on to be like, hey, could you think about the visual aspect of Flork? Because because I understand that in, in a group like that, like it is 95% coding power, right? And like it's all coding and technical execution and literally time just runs out people don't think about how it looks at the end of the day and so he was like could you just be the visual eye on this and so I started to help and not that I'm a theater director but it was just more like I love multimedia weird stuff and like and I do think it's sad when it starts to go into this valley where No one knows what you're doing on stage or no one knows what is exactly happening. And so it's like, yeah, I'm sure just with lighting, you can focus things and also like where people should look. Maybe this chair should be in a profile that show off the brain sensors, or maybe we should put bits of glow tape on the brain sensor bits so that people see that there's something on their heads, right? Instead of just guessing that there is something. So it's small things like that, where it's like, I guess I bring kind of this old school theater background (laughs) into my audiovisual work just because it's just so... Just as we started this podcast, like I I do think of things visually from the get go. And to me, it's what makes something memorable. I think that's something I always strive for is always like, you know, people might not remember the title of your piece. They might not remember like what song that was, but they'll be like the song with the harmonics or the song with the slapping of the guitar. Like they'll remember something very the thing that's memorable is what's going to stick with them. Maybe not necessarily the exact title or how to look it back up again on Spotify. And so I'm always like, how can we make something that is literally very memorable and physical? And I was thinking about, you know, how, what is Ensemble Decipher's current language and what could be added to their canon in a way that also shows off their physicality um, as an ensemble, as like a, to me, it's like a flock formation. It's like (laughs) <laughs> I I see you guys as like it's almost like yeah having birds in a chevron where I'm like okay it's like everyone is in formation and everyone has uh, is aware of kind of their spatial awareness with each other and spatial relationship to create kind of these larger shapes and really interesting spectral sonic moments too as a result from these from these gestures moving
0: great well you can see the premiere of Borayun's Cat's Cradle at Roulette in Brooklyn New York on. Monday, October 23rd, 2023, performed by Ensemble the Cypher. And a few weeks later, Bora and Joshua Ott will perform at the Other Minds Festival on November 18th of 2023 at the Taub Atrium Theater in San Francisco. So thank you so much to Bora and Josh for joining me today. Thank you, guys.
1: Thanks, Joey. This has been great.
0: <laughs> this has been an episode of the Other Minds Podcast. Brought to you by Other Minds. Our 27th festival is November 14th to 19th, 2023, at the Taub Atrium Theater and Gray Area in San Francisco. Join us again next week.